You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest this week is Glenn Greenwald. Glenn is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He is also an Oscar winner and he is a tennis fan. He's been on the podcast before and today he talks about the new documentary that was just announced yesterday. He's doing a doc on Martina Navratilova in conjunction with Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine Studios. Um... I will warn you, Glenn is in Brazil, where he has a base of operation with his husband and children. And this was not the cleanest conversation. Skype, you failed us. Every five minutes or so, uh, the line fell out. So this is going to be a little bit choppy, but it's a good conversation with uh, with a favored guest and someone uh, who, who I always look up to. He talks about the documentary with Martina. We talk a little bit about Tennis Sandgren. He has uh, scattered thoughts there. Talk a little bit tennis. It's a good conversation in quality, meaning substance, not quality as in audio quality. So uh, apologies. Thanks in advance to our excellent editor, Jamie Lasanti, for her editing. Um, good conversation. We will do it again from a cleaner line next time. Um, here we go. Here's uh, Glenn Greenwald from Brazil. So, so I come across a headline, Glenn. It says, Martina Navratilova doc in works from Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Glenn Greenwald. And I say, those, those are three names, each of whom I like independently. But uh, what are they doing in the same headline? What happened here? <laughs> I think that was the reaction of a lot of people. And actually, that's what makes me probably most excited about the film because I think it's going to subvert a lot of people's expectations about what a film like this could be about the three of us who are collaborating on the film. Um, and I think the extremely unlikely combination of that collaboration is kind of reflective of the extremely unlikely fact that 
you know, growing up in a South Florida suburb in Reagan-era America in the early 1980s, my hero as a child and the person who influenced me most was this lesbian tennis player who had defected from Czechoslovakia. And that's what I think makes this, all of the issues raised by this film so interesting is just kind of the unexpectedness of it. And, and that hopefully will get people thinking about things in, in ways they're not accustomed to thinking about them. And just to be clear, this, this isn't scripted. This is a doc, right? Right. So it's a documentary, but it's not at all a biography of Martina's life, right? That's like the kind of general facts of Martina's journey um, have have been covered by books and films and articles. I think certainly tennis fans are aware of them. The general public, to a lesser extent, is as well. Um, it's really intended to dig a lot deeper about what made Martina such a kind of singularly unique and compelling figure, not on the court, but off the court, the ways in which she influenced people around the world who aren't the likeliest people that she would end up influencing like me. And then kind of using that as a springboard to understand things like marginalization and how we experience ostr being ostracized as, as children and adolescents, what we search for in role models, the, the sense of possibility that people can create. So, um, yeah, it is a documentary, but it's not a traditional documentary in terms of let's just do a biography of Martina's life. The kind of narrative anchor is going to be, I'm meeting my childhood hero for the first time, and we're going to explore all of these issues together. You ever, you ever hear the expression, uh, never meet your childhood heroes? My uh, my my experience with Martina has been completely the opposite. Where she has uh, she she has exceeded your expectation. Uh, she's she's as terrific as you as you think she is. But I I do wonder what in the 1980s made you respond to her like this. I mean, t t today I think she she was way way ahead of the times. I think history will remember her very fondly. But that wasn't necessarily the case when she's ranked number one, and it's it's 1984. What um. What appealed to you so much 35 years ago? Well, I mean, I think you put your finger on it, which is that if you look at Martina through this kind of contemporary lens, you know, she seems very admirable, not even really that controversial. Um, so I know like when Reese Witherspoon tweeted, Martina is this important figure for feminism and women's sports and LGBTQ equality you know, with immigrant rights, everybody says, oh, that's really noble. That that That's great that she did that because those values have kind of become mainstreamed. But 25 and 30 years ago, the exact opposite was the case. Martina was an outcast because of those things. There was almost no, there was certainly very little political organization in support of those causes. There was almost no vocabulary to talk about who Martina's wife was sitting in her player's box or who her trans coach was Renee Richards or the kind of musculature that Martina developed or a training regimen. So much of this was very alienating to mainstream Western culture. And for that reason, Martina was actually radioactive to sponsors. Um, and, you know, my personal experience, I remember very well, my father, my father who with whom I would watch tennis and we grew up in Fort Lauderdale, very close to where Chris Everett grew up. He was a huge Chris Everett fan and he would constantly make these kind of very judgmental comments about 
Martina contrasting her with Chris, you know, oh, look, Chris is this all-American girl from um, a Catholic family, and there's her boyfriend in her box, and her mom, and her sister, and this great nuclear family, and then they show Martina's box, and it's filled with, you know, in his words, a bunch of dykes, and just freaks, and that was how a lot of people reacted to Martina around the world. And then when she became, you know, so physically dominant as well, there was almost a sense like she was cheating. Like this wasn't something that women should be too strong too, you know, athletically dominant. Um, and as I, you know, and this is something that I really only began to explore in the last few years. I mean, I'm, I was a massive Martina fan. I mean, I was emotionally invested in her matches, you know, when I was 12 and 13 and 14, and obviously part of that was, you know, I was a gay adolescent in a time when homosexuality was almost never discussed except in connection with this fatal, horrible epidemic called AIDS. Very few celebrities were openly gay, let alone defiantly and proudly the way she was. That was part of it. But it was also when you feel kind of alienated from society, you empathize with others who are. And that was very much Martina's posture, notwithstanding that she's now widely regarded in these affectionate tones with these new eyes that we have very recently, you know, 25, 30 years ago, she was looked at much, much differently. And that's part of what I want the film to convey. I think that's important though, because I think too often this gets lost in the story that when Martina is Martina, this infrastructure doesn't exist. There is not this social moment. There is not athletes ally. There are not openly gay Congress people and Will and Grace, and and she's she's doing this at a time that that's much different culturally than uh, where we are today. Yeah, I mean, I you know the first conversation I had with Reese Witherspoon about this project when she had read the treatment and immediately said they want this to be their first documentary, she was talking about her own experience because she's become one of the leaders, if not the leader, of the Times Up movement in Hollywood. She introduced Oprah Winfrey. Um, for Oprah Winfrey's, you know, really news-making Golden Globe speech. So Reese has become a, a political activist in addition to this kind of film mogul and A-list actress. And and she talked about that, right? That we, we talked about that, the fact that obviously, you know, being um, an activist for feminism now or being an openly gay person still brings some difficulties, especially for children, but nothing compared to what it was like when Martina was doing it in the 80s when she was really alone. I mean, she became radioactive, to all sponsors, she lost millions and millions of dollars um, by being openly gay, which WTA officials warned her would happen if she did it, and she did it anyway. Um, but even beyond that, you know, um, she came here with a thick Eastern Bloc accent and often criticized the U.S. government in ways that even native-born Americans were afraid to do. So it was always this kind of defiance, always this sort of sense of I'm going to be who I am regardless of societal condemnation um, that made her I think such a powerful figure and what's, what really fascinates me about it is I never really have gotten the sense and this is part of what I want to explore that say unlike Billie Jean King who I think was self-consciously a feminist activist you know I'm leading a movement I'm, I'm, I'm helping a cause I feel like Martina was more just being Martina um, and one of the most fascinating quotes is when she was asked in the 70s all the time, why did you defect from Czechoslovakia? She would always say because Czech officials told her, um, just don't do anything to bring attention to yourself. Don't do anything to be noticed. And she said that was basically them telling me I couldn't be an individual, right. which would you know destroy my ability to fill my potential, not only as a tennis player, but as a human being. 
And that, I think, is what Martina is more than anything, is just this person who insisted on the right to express herself as an individual. And it cut across, you know, sexual orientation lines and gender lines um, and cultural lines and nationality um, in a way that um, I don't think people have quite appreciated. Um, and I also think it's exactly what you just said, which is we often so take for granted the idea that you can stand up and say, I'm going to be a feminist or I'm going to be, you know, a gay activist or I'm going to be an immigrant exercising my political rights. Whereas 30 years ago, um, that really did bring you amazing scorn and to go and to listen to, you know, TV announcers, the way overwhelmingly male TV announcers at Wimbledon finals talked about Martina or male sports writers wrote about her body. It's actually shocking. Um, and I want people to know what the discourse was so recently who might, especially younger generations take for granted a lot of the liberties we now have. I, I stumbled across totally by accident, uh, within the last week, a write-up of the 1984 Wimbledon when, uh, Mar- Martina won and, showed up with, I'm blanking on the Judy Nelson for the first time. These are not the not the British tabs, never mind that. I mean, the regular, austere, esteemed British publications were, were had no idea how to characterize any of this. But these stories that were written about Martina and her lover's box and uh, the terminology that was sort of thrown around cavalierly, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, I, I don't know if you've... How, how, Deeply you've delved into that, but uh, Wimbledon 1984, um, we'll, we'll, uh, that, that might help you in your research. Is is Martina, I mean, I, I assume this is with her blessing and, and her full cooperation and support? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I said, a big part of the film is going to be, I, I purposely have avoided meeting Martina the last couple of years <laughs> um, in because I wanted to preserve, you know, the substance of our interaction for the film. Um, so the, the big kind of narrative, uh, anchor of the film is going to be the lead up and the preparation to my going to our house and wherever we meet and, and meeting her for the first time. And then however much time we spend together. So yeah, she's excited by it. Um, she's supportive of it. She is cooperative with it. Um, especially when she found out that, you know, somebody like Reese Witherspoon was so vocally behind it. Um, that made her more excited still. So I think it has the potential to have a real impact, not just with tennis audiences, because I don't see it as a tennis film or even a sports film, but as a broad mainstream cultural film that resonates in lots of different countries. And, and that's why that, that unlikely combination that you started off alluding to is so important, you know, and it's so exciting in terms of the potential that I think the film could have. But just to be clear, you you're a tennis guy. I mean, I, I want to sell your uh, Bonafides. You you appreciate uh, when a player wins five majors in a row and, and Martinez achievements. Were, were you a player? Were you a junior player? I mean, were you appreciating her as a as an athlete in the eighties as well? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm you know I you know I, I did your your show a couple of years ago um, in in the run up to the Olympics here in 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 Rio. And we spent a long time talking about the current state of tennis. So I've been, you know, a tennis fanatic just as an, an admirer of the game and the sport um, for so long. And that was, you know, obviously the foundation for my um, admiration for Martina. My connection to Martina would be sitting in front of the TV, watching her play, usually Chris Everett, but, you know, Steffi Groff and Monica Seles and Pam Schreiber um, and Zena Garrison and just all the Hanna Monlikova and Yana Novotna. You know, that whole era is what really transformed me into a fanatic of the sport. Random one for you. 
Did Did you listen to Slow Burn, that Slate Watergate podcast? I have not. No, it's terrific. Highly recommend. But but the point is that it's a podcast. Of, you know, I think it's seven or eight part podcast about Watergate. But obviously, the resonances today are uh, a big reason of why this is important and why it's greenlit. Um, this documentary on Martina is, is not existing in a vacuum. Uh, how much does this dovetail with this uh, peculiar cultural moment we're having right now? Oh, yeah, I think in so many ways it does. Um, you know, part of it is is the good part of a cultural moment, right? Like, I was really struck by the fact that the stars of the Winter Olympics were Adam Rippon and Gus Kenworthy, not despite their being gay, but because of it. You know, Gus Kenworthy kissing his boyfriend on national television, and Adam Rippon, you know, just being very kind of um, aggressively gay about his, his identity in so many ways that won them great admiration. Um, you know, tennis players now come out, um, not so much on the ATP circuit still, but and in fact, not at all for active players, but the WTA, I think in the last 12 months, um, something like six or seven top 100 players have come out and it barely causes a ripple. And so the contrast is, I think, um, very exciting. And then you have the kind of darker side of our political reality, right? That, um, you know, one of the things that I think makes Martina, so remarkable is that she came to the United States, um, often in times where immigrants weren't appreciated. Um, she came during the Reagan era, which was a high level of patriotism and criticized the government. She created this massive controversy right after the 9-11 attack in like February of 2002. She gave an interview to a German paper where she said the Bush administration was destroying the political rights that she came to the United States to enjoy. It caused a huge controversy. Connie Chung interviewed her and told her, you know, something like, who are you to criticize our country? If you don't like it here, why don't you go back to Czechoslovakia? Um, and so, you know, there's there's this amazing moment now where you see celebrities and especially sports figures um, using their platform for the political rights that they correctly perceived are being under attack by our own government. And Martino was a pioneer of that too, of the idea that, yes, I'm a tennis player, but I'm not going to be Michael Jordan, who is just going to remain apolitical and silent because I want to represent Nike and every, and Coca-Cola and get rich off doing that. I'm also a human being involved in this culture and I'm going to use my political rights. And you see that now with athletes and celebrities who realize that, you know, we're kind of in a political moment where nobody has the luxury of thinking they're outside of or above politics. Um, and that's certainly true of immigrants, people who come to the United States in search of a better life, as Martina did. Um, so, yeah, I think that it resonates in so many ways, um, more now than ever, because of, of the climate the United States is currently in politically. As long as you brought it up. Um, this, this is a question that uh, people are often curious about. Any, any thoughts on why there are no um, out gay men on, on the ATP tour and, and re- really never have been during their playing career? I mean, it doesn't. We, we certainly have an analog and, and a long history on the women's side. It doesn't strike me as a particularly hostile workplace. It's an individual sport. You're not dependent on uh, the the coach finding favor with the coach or you know the quarterback throwing you the ball. Any any idea why that hasn't been the case? Just I- empirically. It's so baffling and counterintuitive for exactly the reason that you just said. So you have in team sports where you could almost understand the reluctance because of the need to have camaraderie with people who may not be comfortable, openly gay 
athletes, you know, in, in the most kind of like macho traditionally, uh, traditional male sports, football, basketball, you know, baseball. Um, and yet in tennis where no camaraderie is needed with anybody, but your own team. Um, and there are lots of players, Maria Sharapova, most famously who go out of their way, not to have any interaction with anyone who's on the tour, um, because of how individually competitive it is. And yet it, it's never happened. And I listened to your, your really fascinating interview with Brian Vahali, who I think is probably still one of the only contemporary top 100 players who came out even after retirement. Um, you know, and he sort of talked about in a way that was interesting, but also a little bit excuse making kind of, look, my focus was on my tennis. I didn't want to distract from it by being the gay tennis player. Um, I think he had a little bit of regret, um, but, you know, I think that, I, I think that what ends up happening is that tennis players are, are kind of trained to be so obsessively focused on themselves and their athletic success that, you know, even now coming out is still a difficult thing to do, especially if you're in the public eye, um, that I think that it just ends up being something that, um, distracts from what they're supposed to be focused on, but that still leaves the question of why women can players can do it and not male players. And I think the answer to that is there always has been a different kind of stigma on gay men than on gay women. Um, not to say one is more or less, but they're just kind of different in how they manifest. And I think that's part of what explains that. I'll, I'll give you a floater that you can, uh, you can hit, hit over the fence, but, uh, it was, suggested to me that one reason is that there is something self-selecting going on and that just empirically speaking, gay men are not playing professional tennis and they're just, someone said, isn't it possible that there are no gay men in the top hundred and all of this is not about social stigma and history and fears, but just that player does not exist. You want to, you want to, you want to have it that one? You know, I suppose it is possible. Um, I think there, I'm not entirely sure, but I think there are some lower ranked players that have come out, though very few. So, but even there, so there are what now 1,700 ranked players in the ATA, in the ATP rankings from, you know, dozens and dozens of different countries and backgrounds. It would be extremely hard for me to believe that the primary reason that there are just no prominent current active players who are openly gay is because none of them, none of them is gay. Um, I, I suppose it's possible. Um, that's, that's but given they, uh, that we yeah. have now openly gay athletes in every other sport, um, it's hard for me to see why gay men would be particularly avoiding tennis. Um, you know, especially since the choice of what sport we commit to happens, you know, if you're a professional when you're eight or nine or 10, um, before we even have self-consciousness about this. So I think, you know, obviously it's possible that that's the case, but I think that that explanation, especially when you look back 10 and 20 years, becomes increasingly unlikely. Um, no, I just, from, from, a, from a, exactly, from a, from a math perspective, it doesn't make sense. All right, here, here's a nerdy X's and O's documentary question. I, I hope I'm not violating confidences, but I, I'm... Uh, wrapping up a, a, a Feder Nadal documentary that we're trying to have out this summer and getting rights to uh, tennis matches is not for the faint of heart. Have, have you thought about how you are going to get uh, the actual footage of Martina playing? You mean the, the footage from her prior, her old matches? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah, so I mean, there's there's all different, as you have written about, you know, part of what makes tennis so difficult is that there's just so many little fiefdoms and factions, and so, you know, each Grand Slam footage is controlled by one entity, and then uh, the, the, the WTA tournaments are controlled by others. Um, it's going to be a big headache, um, but... At the same time, Martina has a lot of it. A lot of it is online where you can use it as fair use. Um, and so I think we're going to try and make liberal use of, of those fair use laws so that we don't have to um, end up licensing things from a thousand different, very authoritarian <laughs> entities. If only you were a lawyer. Um, let, let me... Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say... That background might come in handy. We, we, should, uh, we, we should pause here and say the, the J.D. Oscar winner, Pulitzer Prize winner, is a is a trifecta on the order of Greenwald, Navratilova, and Reese Witherspoon. You you don't often see JD Oscar and uh, Pulitzer Prize winner in the same uh, in the same bio. So uh, I, I pause to commend you f- for that. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 exciting. So I I don't want to again um, I don't want to violate confidences, but I I know that the two of us have both had some fairly lengthy exchanges with Tennis Sandgren post Australia in. I wanted to just kind of get your take. This is not a a feud, and I don't I don't think this is even a situation that sort of breaks along left right conservative liberal divide lines. It's a weird sort of fact pattern here, but I'm I'm curious what you make of this in general, and maybe the social media dimension to this whole saga. Well, I found the whole. Uh, controversy that kind of escalated with each match that tennis won at the Australian Open to be really fascinating. Um, and, and in part it was because it began by kind of this um, this reaction to the people that he was following on Twitter. Um, he wasn't following all that many people, I think maybe like 500. And among them were a bunch of very controversial and in my view, very pernicious kind of figures from what people often refer to as the alt-right. And as it turned out, he also, though, and and this made it into almost none of the stories, also followed a lot of people who are typically associated with the left, one of whom happened to be me. Exactly. Um, And he also followed The Intercept, which is the media organization I co-founded in 2013 and where I currently report. And so the storyline and the narrative that got formed with each kind of passing victory as he progressed through the tournament was that he was kind of this hardened racist um, who had associated himself with some very odious uh, political causes and figures and ideologies. And, you know, one of the things that I personally think has happened over the past, you know, say two years, um, is that as we tried to understand how Donald Trump won, the presidency, and, and despite all the, the, the ways he deviates from what we think of a president is supposed to be and the expectations that he would lose, we've kind of taken the entire group of people who voted for him and have just kind of written them off as these kind of retrograde, racist, um, in Hillary Clinton's words, deplorables. And I think that, you know, a lot of them are and a lot of them aren't. Um, a huge number of them are not, in fact. Um a lot of them voted for Obama uh, and then voted for Trump because they were looking for somebody to oppose the current political climate that has been so damaging economically to so many people, created all this inequality. Um, They were just looking for somebody who railed against how things are done in Washington the way first Obama did and then Trump did. 
Um, so I never thought, you know, I've always been uncomfortable with this narrative that anyone who votes for Trump, who voted for Trump is this sort of just uh, retrograde fascist or racist, the way that I think that in a lot of ways this narrative around Tennis Hingren formed. Um, and then I'm also just very wary as well as somebody who does a lot of work online and, and is pretty active on social media and in a way in a, in a world that's very polarizing and divisive, which is the world of politics and journalism of how easy it is to form judgments about people based on kind of stray tweets that people haven't thought out very clearly or might be, you know, posting, running toward dinner or whatever. Um, and I've seen lots of people that I know really well be radically misportrayed um, about who they really are based on a lot of this. And so when this whole thing with Dennis happened, I was very curious to know, is he really this, you know, kind of hardcore, irredeemable, um, racist and, you know, somebody who empathizes with, with fascism the way that it was being suggested, or is he somebody more kind of thoughtful and open and who was being unfairly vilified? And so I ended up talking to him um, as a result of um, the fact that he followed me on Twitter. Um, he, by chance, actually, I live in Rio de Janeiro, of course, and, and um, he did a, after the Australian Open, a, a Latin America clay court swing that included, there's a big ATP 500 tournament here in Rio de Janeiro um, that he played in. And, and so, you know, he met my husband, who's a black elected socialist here in Rio, and our recently adopted children from the northeastern part of Brazil, and we spent time together. And I've gotten to know him pretty well, and, and he's an extremely smart, thoughtful, open-minded person who I think wasn't so much attracted to, you know, this kind of ugly part of an ideology, but is really just somebody who at the age of 25 and 26 um, is looking for answers, figuring out who he is, trying to navigate through different ways of looking at the world. And, you know, we have to ex accept the fact that trust in our big media institutions have collapsed and people therefore are more open-minded to alternative sources of information. And, you know, honestly, John, one of the things for which I'm most grateful in life is that the internet did not exist when I was 18 and <laughs> 20 and 25 Amen. to permanently record all of the thoughts that I felt like expressing in the world. What, what about this? When you're, when you're homeschooled? We rebel against things and we you know, figure out what taboos we can violate when we're figuring out who we want to be as people. Um, and so I think to take tweets that somebody wrote when they were ranked 600 in the world and nobody was paying attention to and they had 30 followers and they were focused on their tennis and not politics and use it to kind of permanently erect this very negative image of who they are um, in this way that felt like kind of mob justice, you know, picking on somebody who unlike, say, Ryan Harrison or John Isner or Sam Cleary, um, who have been around for tennis a long time and also have a lot of pro-Trump sentiments that they've expressed. Somebody who was just very easy to pick on because he had no, he had no prize money, he wasn't represented by AMG, um, you know, and it just started to feel like a kind of mob mentality, demonizing and villainizing somebody a little unfairly. And so the more I got to know him, the more I became convinced that's true. Um, you know, I'm glad he deleted his tweets. Um, I'm glad that he apologized for some of the ones that were the most offensive, many of which were written when he was 19 and 20 years old. Um, and I think he is somebody who has learned a lot from that. And, and hopefully people will give him a second chance the way they should give everybody a chance to kind of redeem things they've said or done in the past. One of the ironies, and I think you and I are very... 
much at the same place here. One, one of the ironies I found was that here is someone who has more sort of curiosity and, and philosophical flexibility than anyone. Um, he, here's someone who, who openly admits he's still trying to figure out issues and figure out where he stands. He was homeschooled, so he probably maybe come to this process a little bit late. Um, we, we, in, this, in some ways, we, we should all envy his open-mindedness. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it was, you know, I think it's very fair when a public figure or somebody who becomes a public figure has said certain things or expressed certain views that are disturbing or, um, you know, that have, have, have some, some, some underlying ugly sentiments to hold those people accountable for those things and to ask about them. Um, and to inquire, you know, is this really something that you believe? Is this really who you are? Um, and in that case, and in so many other cases that we've seen where people have had their reputations destroyed overnight because of a single tweet, um, sometimes the ones that they intended to post but was poorly thought out, other times ones that were misunderstood, um, you know, the power of social media to bring us all together and to exert this power to build up people or destroy them is an extremely potent one. Um, you know, there's a reason why we don't punish people in societies um, judicially and without there being a real process to kind of examine the evidence and give everybody an opportunity to be heard um, because humans are so prone to making errors in judgment. Um, but on social media, there are none of those protections. It's very easy to just kind of instantly react and condemn and denounce. Um, and I think we need to be a lot more careful about this new medium and the power that it, it wields to, to venerate people um, when they don't deserve it, but also to, to turn them into demons as well. I heard a law professor say this, this, is, the, this is the first time in, uh, in history people are punished for ideas. Um, all right, this, before our uh, audio goes... A little speed round for you if you're up for it. Sure. Let's go. Tiago Monchero is the highest-ranking Brazilian. What's going on with Brazilian tennis? Uh, Brazilian tennis is, is really sad. There's so many talented players, Thomas Bellucci being kind of the symbol, Tiago Monchero being another, um, that just aren't reaching their potential for whatever reason. And it's a country primed to love tennis. It's the fifth biggest country in the world. Because of Guga, they are ready to embrace tennis, and yet the next generation just hasn't come close for reasons that are really hard to understand. All right, in, in, in 60 seconds or less, and we could do an hour on this, when, when you're at a cocktail party and, and people say, what, what is the state of the First Amendment these days? What are, what are your top-line thoughts? You know, the First Amendment is something that I am actually a pretty strong proponent of in a pretty absolute sense. I kind of agree with the ACLU's view of, of free speech. They've obviously represented some of the worst human beings on the planet um, in terms of their free speech right, which is what I've done too, both as a journalist and a, uh, 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 um, a lawyer. Um, so I think it's under attack in lots of different ways, unfortunately not the ways that we often appreciate. Um, the people, for example, on college campuses who are most punished for their speech tend to be people who criticize Israel or who are activists on behalf of Palestinian rights. A lot of the censorship comes from the right. A lot comes from the left. Um, and I think we ought to have the attitude that free debate is always better than picking and choosing which ideas are, are not allowed to be expressed. What's, what's your status update if, if in, in a minute or less? Uh, we, we spoke two years ago about the sort of the state of Brazil. Two, two, two years later, 
you again, you, you run into some someone sits next to you on a plane and says, "What's the deal with Brazil?" What, what's your top line uh, response to that? Things have gotten actually worse since we spoke, and they were pretty bad back then. There's a presidential election in 2018. The the candidate that was leading in the polls, which was Lula, who was the president for for eight years, is now in prison. Um, faith in the entire media and political establishment have collapsed, which, as we've seen in the UK and the US, opens the way for demagogues and extremists. Um, and the leading candidate is an actual fascist, um, somebody who wants a restoration of a military dictatorship. Um, it's it's a really grim situation in Brazil, but there's, as always, opportunities for good things as well when crises emerge. Last question. What's your timetable for this documentary? I suspect this will excite a lot of people, and the first question they will say is, when is it coming out? What's, uh, what do you tell people? So the standard conventional view of documentaries is that it's supposed to take 12 to 18 months. Um, I have a lot less patience than that, so I'm saying it's going to be done in nine, nine months or so, but probably it'll be a year um, from the time we start, which is now, until the time that it's actually ready to be seen. So I would say probably early um, 2019, so basically a year from now. I'm thinking uh, this, this will excite a lot of fans. This was a form of torture, having to uh, cut this apart. Next time we will uh, talk Dilma Rousseff and uh, more tennis, and we will do it without all these interruptions. How's that sound? Yeah, we will definitely secure a better line. I'd love to do it. Thanks so much. Good luck with the doc. Always a pleasure. Thanks, John. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Glenn. All right. Thanks to our guest, Glenn Greenwald. Thanks, as always, to Jamie Lasanti, who has her work cut out for her on this podcast, patching together uh, all that dicey audio here in our studio in New York to Brazil. But we thank Glenn. We look forward to that uh, Martina Navratilova documentary. If any tennis subject uh, warrants a documentary, it's Martina. This seems like a great way to approach her and all she stands for. Uh, Jamie, bring you in. Um, Again, that was a little dicey audio-wise, but uh, it more than compensated with substance. Always a pleasure talking with Glenn Greenwald. We're going to make some calls to Skype after this one. Damn you, Skype. Um, What what struck you from that conversation? I really uh, enjoyed his discussion about Tennis Sandgren and sort of how they connected and how he was able to meet with him and spend time with him and talk with him. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice perspective. Of course, all of us don't have that luxury of kind of spending time with him and getting to know him, which of course can kind of help the whole situation. But um, I really appreciated his insight from those conversations and the, the takeaways that he had from them. So, I think it's going to be interesting to see where Tennis Sandgren goes from here. Um, this, this was all private, so um, I'm not comfortable sharing, but we had a number of long, long exchanges, and I think uh, Tennis Sandgren is not what uh, I suspect the casual fan might think he is. This is someone who's very thoughtful, very open-minded. I think he's a little bit still baffled and maybe shell-shocked about what happened. This is not someone who's drawn his political line in the stand and, you know, if I'm following who I follow, and if if you don't like it, uh, don't come into my tent. Um, It's it's, it's a perception-reality thing. I think it's going to be interesting how Tennis Sandgren handles this, do you try and sort of rewrite the narrative, or does he feel so burned that I'm just going to make it all about tennis and I'm not going near that third rail that is uh, politics in the U.S. in 2018? If he, if and when he kind of advances far again and kind of really starts to make a name tennis-wise, it will be interesting to see if he defers those kind of questions, because it will undoubtedly come up again, or, um, you know, we'll see how people react. I think it will linger for
for a, at least this year. I think it's still too soon. Yeah, I think I think you have a good point too that the state of his tennis and again, if anything good came out of this, it's that we no longer have to make gratuitous jokes about his name being tennis. But if if the state of his play and the state of his ranking continues to improve, that gives him more opportunity to uh, to be a public figure. But I think it's going to be interesting to see how he handles this because this is not some one who has extreme views necessarily and and has drawn his line in the sand. Um, I can make a small announcement here, Jamie, I think. I'm not sure uh, if this is appropriate, but we'll do it anyway since we're talking about tennis documentaries. I think we're at the point where we can officially say that a Federer-Nadal documentary will uh, be released here in a a few weeks. This has been a bit... um, a, a bit of a secret, a bit on the down low, as it were. But uh, I think we're at a place where we're going to take the liberty of uh, telling tennis fans that's something they can look forward to. We'll, we'll leave it at that and have more details uh, coming. But as long as we're talking about uh, documentaries, I figure this is as good a time as any. Um, I won't pry. Don't I'll, pry. I won't no, no. I mean, this, this is a this project has been in the... It's based on, on the book I wrote 10 years ago. I did not think when I wrote about their... 2008 Wimbledon match 10 years ago uh, they would still be number one and number two in the world and having won every major played in the last 18 months but here we are 10 years later um, which which again I mean this it's about their rivalry it's about this amazing match they had at, at Wimbledon sort of a love letter to uh, both players tennis channel will uh, be broadcasting it along with some other partners but uh, I, th- I think we can make that announcement I'm not on the PR team but uh, we're we're a few weeks away and maybe it's time to get the Publicity wheels rotating. Um, did you happen to see Carolina Pliskova yesterday, Jamie Lasanti? Yes. I'm putting you on the spot. You saw that one. Thoughts? Oh, I mean. Punishment? She got angry. She did get angry. I think maybe first time we've seen something like that from her. I was going to say not from a player in general, but I can't recall a time where she's really gotten no, so, so mad. At but I think she's. She's a player who you you suspect, uh, you know, she's top five top five player and probably has some competitive instincts. But no, I've I've never seen anything like that. I mean, generally, uh, you say that top five player, there probably should be some sort of repercussion, uh, just kind of as a principle type thing. I, I've got two kind of uh, I don't I don't know. Tell tell me if you agree on this. I mean, I I have two countervailing forces here. One of them, three really. One of them is, again, I distinguish between heat of battle and when our biochemistry is back to normal you know have a dispute in the locker room or the players lounge that to me is exponentially worse than when we're in this aroused state of competition she also did get the raw end of a deal we can discussion for another time why is there not hawkeye on clay jamie lasanti i ask you uh i mean you know what not unlike jared donaldson i do think there's something to be said for the fact that she was wronged um the the countervailing sort of countervailing point in the other direction is you just you don't do that to an official right well that's what my thing is that the principle is that you know she's a top five player yes the call was wrong but you know the the call could have it could have happened to other people so you wouldn't expect you don't want anyone else to react that way so it's kind of like if you let someone else do it and you don't punish them not a good look but no i i just think it's one of the ground rules of sports we see we see this in the nba all the time you can say whatever you want the minute you make physical contact with an official you've yeah, surrendered the boarding pass. Even if it's just a little get in the face. Exactly. Um, this will only add to the wide openness of the women's draw. We'll do a little French Open preview next week. But real quick, today. Yes. May seven. May ten. What is it? May seventeenth. Okay. Pick pick your French Open women's winner. Oh, Simona Halep. All right, not bad. 
Uh, finalist last year. Uh, can I? Can you give me one more week? <laughs> I don't fair. know. Every can time you, you check these results, week. you're like, oh, it's Mugu, and then you're, no, oh, now, Mugu's out. Now we can change it next. Yeah, week. I'd probably go Hollop. Okay. I probably would. Kind of a lame, kind of a lame pick, but anyway. I have a, I have a random Sue, question. What do you got? What do you got? I I don't know if I've ever asked you this. What is your opinion on? I don't really know if I see this any other sports. It always is funny to me. Players when they have to withdraw from a tournament, or you know, they they play a match and they get injured. They send out a tweet, and it's like, I'm so sorry that I had to withdraw. Here's the reason why. I'm looking forward to coming back, or I'm looking forward to being here next year. Is it necessary? What's your, what are your, what are your, I mean, we don't see that if, you know, if, if Cam Newton has to sit out on a Sunday, he's not sending out a tweet saying, sorry, Panthers fans, you know, I'm, I'm not playing this week, and I'm, I'm really bummed about it. You know, they just kind of, the team issues a, an injury report, and you. Uh, that's the key right there, though. No, Cam, Cam Newton has the apparatus of a of a team. But uh, the the <coughs> tournament announces yeah, I guess it. it yeah. The tournament will say, you know, so and so has withdrawn because of a, a knee injury, and you know they won't be competing this year. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is for uh, their fans at the event. Hey, listen, I've traveled great lengths to see Madison Keys play in Italy. How could you have done this for me? I think it's probably more for the global fan base that these players have. I, I'm with you, though. It's, I it's just a feel little, like there's a weird standard It's set a now. little weird. If I yeah. was a player, I would feel almost obligated to do it because my colleagues, essentially, right. are also doing it. And so maybe I, you know, maybe I really hurt myself and, like, I don't think that I need to announce it. But I don't apologize is, is, is your, uh, is, I was going to say, is it the apology? Is it the precedent? Is it the fact that prior to a Grand Slam, we always see a lot of withdrawals because players want to go in as close to 100 percent. I think 100%. it's the apology part. Don't be sorry for. I mean, because then you see the the I'm sorry I had to withdraw, and the reason is because of an injury. But sometimes it's because they just won the previous tournament, and you know they're exactly. they need a week off, and so it's like, should you really be apologizing for that? You you know it. I always uh, it's it's sort of an offshoot of that. The cognate of that is the tournament that says um, we are so sorry that. Uh, Jamie Lasanti won't be playing this event. Meanwhile, you know they're they're grinding their teeth and they're trying to get their appearance fee back. And but it also says, you know, we wish her nothing but the best. We look forward to her return to Montreal in 2019. She's a decorated champion, and it's uh, a pity she won't be with us. But she's been a great ambassador. And meanwhile, you know they're. Ugh. Um. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. Strange, uh, strange twist in tennis. One of many. But no, I I do think um, as the Grand Slams get. More and more important in every sense. In the the prize money goes up, and this is where players make their reputations. It's a real risk you run at these tune-up events. That if I listen, if if I'm trying to win the French Open and I'm a little dinged up ten days out in Rome, that fourth round match becomes uh, very losable on my schedule. So you're never quite sure the severity of these. I mean, you know, you saw something like, um, you know, you saw the Bryan brothers. Uh, I think Bob Bob hurt his looked like from. Look, like he hurt his hip. Um, pulling out of a, a a final. That's that's a legitimate injury. A lot of other times, you think this may be more precautionary. But you know, again, we're we're in a sport of independent contractors. There is no Carolina Panthers that can uh, I know, I know. put you on the list. I knew that so was going to be your the uh, the players are autonomous beings. Anyway, um, good question. You can feel free to ask me anything. Um, thanks to uh, Glenn Greenwald again and again. Apologies for that audio, but the uh, the takeaway the. Um, the cut and save is that this Martina Navratilova documentary might be out, uh, if I heard right, as soon as early 2019. I'm not sure if he misspoke there, but uh, that would be 
That would be great. Uh, Glenn does terrific work. You can follow him on Twitter, G Greenwald. You can see his work on The Intercept. And again, this is an A-list journalist. The rare journalist, Jamie Lasanti, if you said, I was thinking this, if you said Brady Manning to him, he would say uh, Chelsea Manning and uh, a Brady declaration, a Brady <laughs> disclosure. Um, diff- different kind of guest. Uh, next week, we will talk pre-French Open. We uh, have a guest TBD, but we will call out Lindsay Davenport and say we're expecting her to uh, sign up again, as she usually does before the French Open. Uh, Jamie, thanks. Where can people listen to this podcast if they're so inclined? Yeah, so I'm going to leave specific instructions this week on how to yeah, leave you were a chastised for last us. week. Yeah, so uh, maybe maybe not everyone listens to podcasts on their iPhone or with the Apple Podcast app, but I think it's a real thing. It's purple. If you, if you don't know it, okay? And so you go there, and you search for Beyond beyond the Baseline, and when you get there, there's, like, little tabs. So one of them is, you know, uh, okay, yeah, John's doing this right now. You can go and search, and one of them is Details, and then the middle one is Reviews. And then when you click Reviews, you can write one, and you can rate it and write it all in one, and then you hit Send, and it goes. Presto. Um, all right. With that directive in mind, um, Beyond the Baseline is the name of the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Keep the suggestions coming. A lot of good guest suggestions uh, came in the last few days. Uh, We'll do it again next week. Thanks for listening. Have a good week, everyone.